Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm glad you returned. This week's episode features Elise Sayeta. She's the Macy's fashion director for beauty, and she was our winner of our contest at the Fashion Group International event this spring. If you missed last week's episode, it featured Carla Ruiz of Johnson & Johnson, along with Alicia Sontag of Prelude Growth Partners. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I'm so happy to be sitting across from Elise Sayeta. She is the beauty director at Macy's. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited that you're here. Me too. I'm pumped. I want to tell everybody how we met. So we, um, based beauty and we're brains Meets beauty. We hosted a table at a, um, fashion group international event and we were giving away a spot on the pod and people were just entering, um, on our Google form and, um, you won. I know. <laughs> and from the minute that we met you, we loved you. Oh, yay. I loved you guys too. And like we're super fans and your social is so great. <laughs> Thanks. Will you tell people your Instagram handle? Yeah, of course. It's Elise Sayeta, E-L-I-S-E-S-A-E-T-T-A. And yeah, I try to keep it real, real, you know, <laughs> you really do. I mean, you're, just, you're, you're so spirited and I feel like you're, this is you, right? Yeah. You're not like putting on an Instagram act. No, no, it's easy. It's actually easier for me to be like this <laughs> than a, a, than a more polished version of myself. <laughs> so, um, you know, I want to share a little a bit of the insights in, uh, of our first conversation where we um, did intake hall, which is our process on the podcast. And I was asking you to tell me about your career journey. And so much of it was fashion in my head. I'm like, oh, wait, we're 30 minutes into this intake hall. And like, wait, aren't we talking about beauty? Um, so give us a summary of like how someone starts in fashion and ends up in beauty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it was, it was actually a pretty natural transition because I worked at a department store that had beauty. Um, and beauty is always such a huge, um, you know, area of business for these department stores that it is, it's in my opinion, kind of easy to transition from fashion into beauty. It's definitely a different business model. And, you know, you have to really be up on your game with your storytelling to make sure that, you know, kind of things that might not necessarily be new on the counter feel new every season because we're not getting, you know, monthly deliveries all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I kind of actually like got dropped into the role because I was doing um, menswear, menswear fashion and beauty. It was just kind of like another thing that I was doing and I just really gravitated towards it. So we were talking about, um, you worked specifically for a very uh, expensive brand, a very prestigious fashion brand. And you were having um, this experience, uh, I don't remember what we called it, but basically like you get numb to the cost of things yeah. that when something goes, something that's typically $2,500 goes on sale for $700, all of a sudden it feels like a steal. It's like free. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so not cute, but. <laughs> but that really happens. Oh yeah. Yeah. You definitely start living um, the lifestyle or at least you're trying. I was always trying to <laughs> very hard. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one thing that I really like loved about uh, working in luxury retail is it, I mean, it really fine tuned my eye. I can, I can see when I look down the street, I know if something is, you know, made in Italy <laughs> versus made in China. And, you know, you just, it's, it's a, it was a wonderful way for me to train my eye, which I 
hadn't gotten that training before working in luxury retail. So how did you start in fashion? What was the job? So um, I always worked in a store. I actually started, my first job was in Banana Republic at the mall. And um, you know, I, I had a couple of different roles. Like I worked at Abercrombie and, um, and then back to Banana Republic. But my first, um, I also worked at Diesel. I was selling jeans for a while. Um, but my first like real fashion role that actually got me somewhere was selling handbags at, um, on the selling floor of a luxury department store. Um, and through that, I was actually able to um, make some really great connections with my buyers. Um, it's what's great about like you know working in a luxury department store is you know a lot of times they only have like 40 to 50 doors in the country, so the buyers are actually very very into the sales associates' feedback, and you know you get a lot of great FaceTime with them either on the phone or sometimes we used to actually travel to New York to to see them. Um, so that was really kind of the way that I got into the fashion industry, um, the real way. <laughs> um, but yeah. What's the not real way? Well, not, it's not that there's like not a real way, but like for me, it was always a real, for me, it was always a goal, um, to work in a corporate setting within like a fashion house or something like that. Um, you know, I really wanted to, I really wanted to not work on the weekends. I know that that's like whatever, but I really didn't want to work on the weekends. Um, and I did. I majored in fashion merchandising too, so buying was like a huge focus for me. Um, so I didn't know. You know, I had I had like an internship in college, but you know, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't have many internships. I didn't really have anybody really guiding me on how to get a job afterwards. And then I graduated in 2007 when like the world was ending. So I had to move back to Boston with my parents and, and really just kind of work with what I had, which was Newbury Street in Boston, which is, you know, maybe this big and has all the stores, but there's no corporate headquarter for any fashion house there. <laughs> right, so you got a job at retail. Yeah, so I got a job at Saks. Um, and I Was it hard to get a job? Um, you know, not not so not really because I had a ton of retail experience. Um, I didn't necessarily have um, luxury retail experience, but um, I guess I sold myself <laughs> in order to sell two $3,000 handbags. I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. <laughs> I do get the sense of confidence from you. Like, are you? Do you move through the world just feeling really at ease? I mean, I, I, I try to come off that way, but no, I mean, I think there's definitely like, I question a lot of things that I say and I, I tend to, I have kind of a louder personality. So, and I like to make people laugh. So sometimes when I... <laughs> And trying to entertain them, I'll look back on our conversation and be like, did I really have to take it that far? <laughs> so. so do you think that you are like, um, well, I am, I'll tell you, I'm sort of, I've always been the sort of diary of the mouth type of person. Like I just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> yeah. um, and I watch people around me who are the opposite that are like, they just stay quiet and they let someone like me talk and talk and talk and talk. And I feel like that's the power position, mm -hmm. right? The, keeping quiet, like minimizing words. The stealth one. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, like running shit from like behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've been, I, I really do practice this. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously not on the pod because my job here is to talk, but um, in the world and meetings, even with like my kids, like just letting them talk and then waiting for my opportunity to say whatever I need to say. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's a very powerful practice. I, I would love... I, I think it's a practice that I could practice as well sometimes. Sometimes when I get nervous, I just talk. 
I don't know why. <laughs> right, and then there's other people who don't say a word because they're nervous. Exactly, right? yeah. So it's a lovely pairing. Well, let's talk about retail because um, I do a lot of mentoring of young people who are in college mm -hmm. and then they're ready for the next step and they always ask me, like, how do I get that job at yeah. like a, a brand? And I say, well, if you can't get the job at the brand, then get, go to retail, go work at Sephora, go work yep. at a department store, go do something. If you're passionate about beauty, then mm -hmm. it's going to shine through. Absolutely. Don't just not do anything. Absolutely. Is that the advice you would give? Absolutely, for sure. I mean, I know um, I know a lot of makeup artists that have started um, at a retail store. Actually, um, my friend Romero Jennings from um, MAC, he's the global fashion director he there. He lives in my town. He's amazing. Um, he, uh, I believe, started at Macy's as a makeup artist and was able to, I mean, he's been at MAC now for, I, I want to say, maybe like 20 years. I mean, he's been there since the very beginning. And you know he was able to move up the ranks, and you know I started in retail on the selling floor, and I was able to move up through the ranks. And you know I think if you, I feel like the mall stores are a little bit of a different story. You know if you're at a Gap or at a Banana Republic or an Abercrombie or something, there's there's so many stores that the buyers aren't necessarily super um, you know into each one. But if you do go a little bit more luxury or a luxury department store or even you know like a Mac or um, Becca or something like that those buyers are into what is happening at that store. So it's really, it's a really great way, especially if you shine and you're making your sales and you're doing, you're doing the damn thing, they're going to notice you and they're going to, they're going to get to know you. And that's really all you kind of need to get your foot in the door. Right. So how does one sell a $3,000 handbag? Like, <laughs> does it require selling if someone's walk, if someone's interested? Like kind of, I, th I mean, if somebody's in sacks looking at that, like, it's not like I'm cold calling them. <laughs> so, I mean, luckily we didn't, although sometimes back in the day we used to have to kind of cold call clients, which I hated. Do we call that clienteling? Yes, we call that clienteling. <laughs> but I used to call it cold calling because I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, I was an email girl. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if they're, if they're in there and they're looking... I, what I would always do is I would just kind of start a conversation because I, I ended up being quite passionate about handbags anyway. So I used to, you know, really like to teach them about how it's made and, and you know, why you have to have it and that kind of thing. Um, and that's sometimes how I would sell it. And did you feel like there was a path for the opposite of a hard sell? Like, is it just like if you're not interested, okay, goodbye? Like, what, what, what is that kind of strategy? Uh, oh, like if somebody's like, no, I don't want it. What yeah. do I do then? Honestly, I would just wait for the next. <laughs> um, or, you know, also clienteling is a big part of selling and luxury mm -hmm. as well. I mean, once you become, once you become kind of a trusted style advisor for somebody, um, you know, those, like those types of clients, they want to work with you because they trust your fashion sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, also if something goes on sale too, it's like what you, you have to kind of think to yourself, like, what am I, what do I want to sell to this person full price? And then what do I want to treat them with that I know that they've been looking at that's now on sale. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you kind of, it's kind of gaining their trust and also guiding them down like their road to fabulous closet. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, tell us about how you gain the fashion office's trust in terms of beauty, right? So spending so much time in fashion. Mm -hmm. T tell us about that switch. So, I mean, it definitely was a big switch. I've always, I've always really liked beauty. I've always loved makeup. I've always loved skincare. So those were things that I always just really had a passion for naturally. Um, and then working on the selling floor, I was always on the beauty floor. I mean, always trying on makeup, always getting my makeup done, always 
buying really expensive skincare and haggling for samples, like not cute stuff. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I, there was shifting in my position and I just kind of inherited beauty. And to be so honest, you didn't ask for it. No, I actually didn't ask yeah. for it. I was actually kind of scared when I got it because it was a totally different animal because I have a fashion background. Um, and, and it is a totally different animal. It definitely took me a good couple seasons to, you know, see what, I mean, their market is totally different. Um, it's very event driven. It's, they're very, what's nice about it for, for me at least is that it's still, it's very creative, but at a business standpoint, it's still very analytical, which is what I had been doing and buying and planning a lot. Um, you know, we're always trying to make up for last year's biggest launch. So you have to kind of get creative in the storytelling and then also line up your ducks so that you are hitting those big days that you hit last year and anniversary and those sales numbers. So there were parts of it that I got and then there were parts of it that I needed to get and then there were, you know, parts of it that I just kind of fell in love with and it didn't even really know that it was my calling. <laughs> so when you're a buyer, it's all Excel sheets, right? Like it's all math. Like, kind of, yeah. <laughs> so I've never done that job. Can you summarize what that is? Yeah, so um, I always like to say that if you are awesome at math and you went to school for accounting and you love fashion, you go be a buyer because you are going to kick ass. Because you, I mean, buying is all about math. It's all about running a business. And yes, you get to go to market and you get to pick the product, but you know, you're doing that you're doing that four times a year. It's a, it is a big part of what you do and you have to make sure that you're picking the right product. But like, you're not just going into the showroom being like, oh my God, this is awesome. I like this and this and this and like building outfits. And then like you leave, you're in there armed with sales plans. You're in there with, um, you know, last year's selling, you're in there with an entire strategy from your planner on like how many tops to buy, how many bottoms to buy, where is it going to go, how many doors it should go in, what the sizing should be. I mean, it is broken down to a point where like, it, I, it's almost flawless. <laughs> so the planner's job is even more mathy? Yes. Yeah. So the planner's job is, is extremely mathy. They're the ones that are, they're the ones that are actually mapping out your season to make sure that you're being profitable. And they're also helping you manage your inventory. So you want to make, you know, obviously you want to make sure that you're getting out of inventory that's not necessarily moving. Everybody just wants to be profitable. Right. So if your margin is negative, like not cute, but if your margin is positive, so cute. And if your margin, if your margin is on target, that's okay. But you know, there's room for opportunity. So the planner says, um, it's all, you, you need a lot of jeans, but we don't need any tops or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always a balance because making sure that you can build outfits within your assortment is obviously very important, but you know, a lot of times they, they look at this thing called, um, like stock to sales, for example. So if we put like too much, if we put like too much money into buying too many jeans and it wasn't matching like the sales, like if the inventory wasn't matching the sales, then the planner would advise you to maybe like step back on some jeans and put that money somewhere else, like maybe in tops. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we didn't buy enough tops, the sales were exceeding the inventory type of thing. So yeah, it's super mathy. All right, so then <laughs> is, is the whole planner buyer scenario the same in beauty? Yes. Yep. So instead of jeans and tops, it's skincare versus color versus sparkle or something? Yes. I mean, in my opinion, I think, now I never actually worked in buying in beauty, but you know, I do see what they're doing and I do see how the businesses are similar and how they're different. 
They're similar because of obviously your planner is guiding you in terms of you know being profitable, but they're definitely they're probably playing a bigger role too in terms of inventory management because in the beauty world as opposed to the fashion world, there are not that many markdowns. So there's not that many, op- there's not that much opportunity to kind of like sell off mm-hmm. inventory that's like slower. So, you know, the planners have to be super, super smart in like negotiating RTVs with um, the beauty brands. What does that mean? That means uh, return to vendor. Uh-huh. So they would like the vendor would either buy back something that they're discontinuing or, you know, give them a discount on it or something like that. Um, the planners also have to be super savvy on how we're going to anniversary big launches from last year if, say, there isn't a big launch this year. Usually the brands are pretty good about that. Like they, once, When you go into market, they have, they'll show you what they did last year, and they're mm-hmm. showing you like how they're either offsetting stuff or anniversary stuff or you know, including more stuff to do even better than last year. Mm-hmm. So, because they have the anniversary of their sales too, they have the same pressures. Exactly, mm-hmm. for sure. So, but yeah, there, there are similarities, and then there are there are differences. Like I think there's not as much, you know, when you go into market at um, a beauty brand as opposed to a fashion brand, it's you're in like their showroom, say, but you're sitting at a long table. The entire team has flown in for it. It's super formal. Wait, whose team? <laughs> so the vendor's team. Uh-huh. And then like uh, usually like the buyer will go from the department store and their DMM, who's their boss, and then their GMM or GBM, in my case, who's their boss. Um, so it's kind of like one side is the vendor and then one side is the department store. And they have this whole marketing presentation that they show you up on a screen. And um, they tell you all the new products that are there, all the new eventing that they're doing, how they're going to improve. Oh, this is always a conversation. How they're going to improve turn on the selling floor because there's a lot of like movement on the selling floor. When you mean say turn, you mean sell, like actually selling products? Um, that and also um, like associates. So like switching of associates. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, because a lot of times like great makeup artists, they'll get poached or uh-huh. you know if they're not really into their management, they'll leave and... If you have somebody with a big book that leaves, that hits your business mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the type of things that we talk about at market. Um, but then my favorite part is when they take all of the new stuff that they're going to give us for the season, we get to play with it. And we talk about how we're going to invent it, what we're going to do for social media and all of that stuff. So, so. you're doing this as a, the department store team for mm-hmm. all the brands on the floor? Yes. So you have like a hundred or more of these meetings? Um, like for the most, not, not that many meetings. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of times, like for the smaller brands, like sometimes they'll come to us and they'll kind of show us like, in a less formal way, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll show us like, you know, what they're offering for the season. Um, but the big brands like Estee Lauder, Lancome, um, Clinique, those guys, Chanel, I mean, we go, we'll go to, and they're all, most of them are based here in New York, mm-hmm. um, those guys at least. So we'll go there and we'll have their meetings there. And then I'm actually going to um, LA and San Francisco for kind of more of our trend brands. So like Urban Decay, Smashbox, um, Too Faced, Tarte, like those guys, they're all based in LA. So we'll do the same thing that we do here over there. Okay, so we talked about what the planner does and what the buyer does. So what are you doing? (laughs) So I get this question every day. Um, People are like, what do you even do? And the answer to that is I guide the buyers pretty much on the storytelling for the season. So I'm the one that's kind of telling them what the mood of the season is. Um, and that goes back to what our forecasting team at Macy's has, has come up with as like the 
fashion point of view for the season. So I come up with like kind of like a beauty mood that goes into ready to wear so that we're all kind of speaking the same fashion language. Um, so I do that. I also scout new brands. So I'm always on Instagram. I'm always like all over the place looking at new brands that we could bring in. Um, I'm also always talking about trends, what to look out for, what are like, I, every season we do an it list. So like, what are the it looks that you have to have for the season and the it products? Um, and honestly, I do a lot of like people connecting. So, you know, if we're having an event or if we want to like have a pop-up situation come in, I'm kind of the one, I, I kind of like major in, uh, major in all, I, I, it's funny with the fashion office, it's kind of like a blessing and a curse. You're in, you're involved in almost everything that's going on, eventing, um, stores and merchandising, but you're not necessarily an expert <laughs> at buying or like advertising or you know so it's it's good and bad it's great because i i get to experience all these things but it's also it's also bad too because fashion director roles are far and in between so you have to be kind of lucky to get into a role so you have this job and it's not like there's so many of these jobs correct yeah it's a pretty coveted role for sure it sounds kind of like the best job you could have it kind of is (laughs) someone else is now doing the math yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it honestly, it honestly is the best role um, because it's really, you know, you're kind of just overseeing you and, and really kind of um, guiding the fashion point of view of, I, I basically guide the fashion point of view for Macy's Beauty. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a big responsibility. Yeah, but it sounds like a little scary. Like what if you're like, it's all about glitter and then for the customer, it really isn't all about glitter. That's literally what I don't sleep. Like that sometimes doesn't make me sleep because yeah, like a lot of times I can get behind something that's like insane, like glitter for, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. And you know, like I'm talking to buyers and planners and you know, my DMM and GMM and they are very, you know, analytically focused and they're, they're creative, but you know, they're definitely more analytically focused. They want to hit their sales goals. They want to make their bonus. They want to make sure that their business is healthy. Right. And I come like floating in and I'm like, you guys, you have to buy like glitter, like glitter is everything right now. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, first of all, you need to shut up and come down from the clouds. And then you have to literally show us a strategy as to why you think glitter is the next big thing. So, so. how do you support that vision? So, you know, one thing that we talk about is this thing called the trend curve. So it's actually a map of how a trend grows, which is great. And this is actually the first time that I ever spoke this specific language. And it's so lovely. It's as if the buying team and the fashion office are now both speaking English. It's lovely. So, you know, this fashion trend curve, it goes from um, incoming post-peak, peak, peak, uh, oh, sorry, incoming pre-peak, peak, post-peak, and then outgoing. So it's like a bell curve. And you know where your Macy's customer likes to live on that curve? Yes. So I would say the Macy's customer is kind of, they're kind of like right on that bell. Uh-huh. So they're definitely interested in, pe- in pre-peak. Uh-huh. They're all about peak. That's really where every, every store is like exploding uh-huh. things out. Um, and then, you know, we have a few that are kind of on the, the like, uh, post peak uh-huh. area as well. I think but, I might be a post peak girl. <laughs> girl, you are not, <laughs> you are not trust. <laughs> um, no, but what's interesting about it is once I was given that language, it was actually really great because I could place 
the trends that I'm talking about on like a timeline right. for the buyers. So, you know, what we want right now, we want to really be looking at things that are incoming, but just kind of looking at them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not, we're not a Barney's. We're not something like, we're not, an, we're not like a brand incubator. We're not like that. Right. So the Barney's would be like part of the, the peep, the pre-peak process. They would be making the peak happen, right? They'd well, be- they would kind of, they're kind of, those types of brands are kind of like the trendsetters. Mm-hmm. So they're the ones that are like, they're kind of like the street style people of like the fashion industry. That's where I would say like most incoming trends start is like street style, industry people, um, uh, influencers, that type of thing. Once you start, I actually used contouring as an example of this because okay. I feel like it has lived its full life. <laughs> let's hope. Right, let's hope. But think about, uh, and I used Kim Kardashian obviously as the example, but think back to when like Keeping Up with the Kardashians came on like 10 years ago and you were like, why does Kim's skin look so flawless all the time? And you're like wondering, like, what is it? What is it? What is it? That's an incoming trend. Mm-hmm. You notice it, you don't know what it is, and you're like super intrigued by it. Then, she starts posting these pictures of her with all the lines on her face and that whole thing. That's now an incoming, an incoming trend because now she's like, let us in on the secret. It's a trend. People are starting to like post about it, do like little Instagram tutorials about it. Then it goes into peak. So that means that like, we got it. Sephora's got it. Every brand has a contouring palette. Every influencer has a video up on YouTube. Like, it's everywhere. We still want it. Your mom knows about it and is, like, asking about it, asking if, like, she's too old for it. And you're like, I don't know. Probably not. Like, there's probably contouring for you. And, like, that's peak. So everybody knows about it. Right. So then, you know, right now, I personally think that uh, contouring is on its way out. Um, so, you know, I think we're in the post peak right, area. But where's the consumer? Like you, you feel like it's on its way out cause you're thinking ahead. Is I, she still in it? You know, I honestly, I think she's sliding down. I think she has peaked it. I think she's like on the top of the bell curve and she's like kind of ready to slide down. Because if you think about brands like milk and, um, flesh beauty that just came out and, uh, what was the other one? There was one. Oh, Glossier. Mm-hmm. Everybody's all about embracing the real you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just had um, a meeting, at, um, I think NPR? I forget. It's like a big trend in agency, but they, they, um, they talk about all the trends that are happening. And, you know, skincare in itself is gaining so much mm-hmm. of the market share of beauty these days. And it just goes to show that people are much more concerned about their skin. Whereas contouring is kind of all about, you know, accentuating... It's chiseling your face, but it's also about covering up. I mean, the, that foundation is super, super, super co- covering. Um, anyway, embracing you, you wearing makeup instead of makeup wearing you is kind of where the trend is coming. That's incoming. That's pre-peak right now. Okay, so we're pre-peak on that. So let yeah. me let me challenge that because yeah. um, I, I'm not a fan of contouring, and I'm also not a fan of like layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of makeup, yeah. which is really what the influencer loves to show, right? Mm-hmm. So the most popular YouTubers are, I mean, I feel like there's 20 layers of product and they haven't even like gotten to the actual, like, listen, now let's put on blush. Yeah. Let's put on our eyeshadow now. So, um, I think they like to do that because they can talk about a lot of brands, right? They can get a lot love from a lot of brands. They can be perceived as somebody who has a lot of product, right? There's like a lot of like, um, you know, I, I guess business reasons and ego reasons why they would love to use a lot of product. Yep. If they walk away from this, they walk away from relationships with 20 brands. For sure. To say, okay, I'm just gonna focus on skin and my blush mm-hmm. and look rosy. Like, 
That's two brands. Right. Um, so will the dynamics of the influencer marketplace allow us to let this this idea of contouring and the, the nonsense of the makeup die? Can it, can it know, be post-peak? I think... I'm not exactly sure if contouring will ever die. In the same way that I don't think people will never stop using foundation. Right. I think it's just something that people will use more during certain times and decades and use less during certain times and decades and certain ages too. Um, I know that this whole like, you know, you wearing your makeup rather than your makeup wearing you thing, that's like a young thing. That's for people with like <laughs> young skin. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think it will ever necessarily die, but there's definitely, you know, a whole emerging influencer happening now too, because I think a lot of people are kind of bored with that super aesthetic driven, you know, super edited. Right. We call um, it like Instagram face. It, yes. Uh -huh. Insta skin. Like, I think people are kind of over that because everybody knows what is behind it. Like, mm -hmm. everybody has the Photoshop app. Like, everybody, like, knows how to achieve that. Everybody has Facetune. Everybody uses it. It's not, like, a secret anymore. It's not necessarily... It's still aspirational, but it's attainable. Whereas now, like, this idea of having, like, perfect skin and glass skin and this whole, like, you know, K-beauty thing and whatever. And that's a little more aspirational, a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. So, no, I don't, I don't think contouring will ever die. I'm pretty sure every single brand will always have a contouring um, palette. But I think in terms of trending, I think it's on its way out. Okay, and are there is there room at a department store like yours for, like, mini trends or micro trends or, like, niche trends? I don't know what I want to call it. Like, for example, you mentioned you know, young people can just go for like that. I'm wearing moisturizer mm -hmm. and a little blush and I'm fine with it. Yeah. And then there'll be women, maybe my age and older who are like, well, I'm not going to leave the house without foundation. Yeah. Can we have a micro trend for women 40 something that maybe wouldn't be as enormous, but mm -hmm. like could also travel on that same curve simultaneously as the young skin, glass skin thing is happening? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, I think everybody of all ages are really like paying attention to their skin and, and I really love that. I think it's great. And then there's also, um, you know, this whole wellness thing that's kind of like hand in hand with beauty right now that I really love. And I feel like that really spans all ages and especially, you know, like Goop was, is really like a brand that kind of marries those two together so nicely and, you know, represents not necessarily like a 19 year old, like definitely like a woman who's, you know, over 30 who has kids and like has all that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think once you kind of tie the wellness into it, um, that's a great way to like, and it's kind of a micro trend right now. It's probably a little bit bigger than that. I definitely see it's grow it growing. Um, and wellness and beauty kind of continuing to be hand in hand down the trend curve. So my last question on this is like for Macy's where yeah. there's like a ton of stores mm -hmm. and you have a like a, a, a wide range of customers, yeah. right, and age and location. Um, can a store like that and your team, can you support these little trends? Or are you really like thinking about like what are most people interested in and that's what we're going to focus on? I mean, we, we definitely want to zero in on some more niche trends mm -hmm. like that and kind of think a little bit more generationally because, you know, we do, we have a very wide range of customers and we have customers who are kind of shifting out new customers that are coming in. Mm -hmm. So we, we always have to be very cognizant of what our demographic is and how that's moving. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a challenge for all department stores, especially in a traditional beauty floor where you have the case lines and everything is like real estate and it's very hard to move around. 
Um, but you know, with certain like mobile fixtures and then also online, like we have, um, a platform called the edit, which is all about trends where mm -hmm. like, that's kind of where our trend talk is. And it's kind of in those areas, like where we will shine on the micro trends and then seasonally too. I want to make sure that we're getting credit for things like tons of like foundation shades, like right. that's super hot right now. So we're going to make sure that that's in our marketing and that we're talking about it online and stuff like that. And you're the person in the system who's going to be the loud person saying like, guys, yes. we have 700 different shades of foundation mm -hmm. here. You need to talk about it in our marketing. Yep. Like you're the one who's always going to be pushing that. Yes. I'm going to be pushing that to the buyers. And then I'm also going to be the voice in the marketing, <laughs> which like kind of hasn't phased me yet, but I'll be on like little things in the stores with like my quotes talking about it and really kind of be like the beauty voice of Macy's. All so. right. So second to last question, yeah. should brands that are interested DM you? Yes. Okay. Girl, yes. Final question is not as a statement. Your baby daughter's adorable. Thank you. <laughs> she's so adorable and she's featured on your Instagram quite a bit. And yes. She's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. She's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I really love her. Being a mom is 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 what's up. I must say. And honestly, going back to the confidence question, I've literally never felt more confident than after I delivered that baby. Anything you know, anything can happen to me in my career, and I can get nervous about anything. But that is truly the one time that I felt like I was really confident. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I would like to tell you that in my life and work, I am like close to a basket case often. Um, yeah, and like, me too. I really like suffer from self-doubt. I like consider that my disease. But what I've noticed as I've made a lot of progress in my work in that and resolving that, I've never had those concerns as being a mom. Like Same. I, even when I like mess up, I just turn to my kids and be like, sorry, I screamed at you. Um, and I don't totally, I don't, um, sit with it. I don't wake up in the middle of the night worrying about it. Yes. I just, I'm so at ease mm -hmm. being a mom, um, and navigating momness and, um, having fun with it and being joyful. And it's such a contrast to my <laughs> professional life where I feel like, I'm always like, well, what are they doing? Why am I not doing that? Or like, we don't have a lot of money. Why is our bank account low? Like I'm always so fixated on the negative and totally. I'm just the opposite as a mom. And it's so beautiful to be able to have that in my life to know that like, this is not all of me is not self-doubt. There's so much of me that's not. Absolutely. And I think like in life, it's, it's the most important role. And you know, if you, if you feel confident in that, it trickles down into everything that you do. So it's quite powerful. I watched my daughter who's <laughs> seven now, um, own her emotions in a way that I just only hope that I can eventually get to. Mm -hmm. Like I've always that. been a bottle it up, not really understand them at the time, fixate yep. on them, yep. sit on them, you know, suffer through them. And she's just, if I'm mad, I'm going to tell you I'm mad. I'm going to slam the door. I'm going to go in my room and do whatever <laughs> I do. And then she comes out and she's resolved it. That's awesome. And I hope to learn. That. <laughs> I think you should have your daughter on your podcast. <laughs> Invite me clearly. <laughs> so she, she can educate us. Pearls of wisdom. Serious. Seven year old. Um, who Seriously. actually doesn't talk to strangers. So. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Elise, for of being course. so open with us. Of and course. sharing not just, um, you know, life in your business world, but life beyond. Thank and, you. Um, I know our listeners are really excited to hear your wisdom and also like the nuts and bolts of how your business works. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm super honored to be here. Thank you. And I'm sorry I cried. <laughs> you know what? This is a place. This is, this this is, is a, a safe space. zone, right? It really is. 
and my friends are all going to laugh at me. They're going to be like, really again? This is <laughs> why people listen to us because like there's other places to go to talk about like your amazing sound, right. your incredible blah, blah, blah. But like, mm-hmm. We need more real human stuff. I absolutely agree with you. I think that my journey would have been a lot easier, and I think I would have suffered less from all that self-doubt if people were just a little more real with me. Yes. So yes. The, the whole point of the show is to be human. Like, yeah, I um, love it. Because I suffer when I see people on stage be like, everything's fabulous. <laughs> but why? Well, it's not for me. I know. <laughs> exactly. It's hard. I know. It is hard. It is really, really hard. And I think, you know, I think women especially need to band together and just kind of, and really lift each other up. And I'm not just saying that in a way that like, we're posting on Instagram about it. Like, I mean, in a way, like the way that Macy's hired me eight months pregnant. I mean, in ways like solid ways like that. Like you can wear a shirt that says, I'm, you know, everybody should be a feminist. And then like, ignore the fact that like, you know, people have families or you can like really embrace women and be like, you're really talented. I know you have a family and you're probably not going to be here 24 seven, but I believe in you and you should believe in you too. And that's why you work for me. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. (laughs) For our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this show with Elise. I know you did. Um, Please check us out on Instagram at where brains meet beauty podcasts and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.